You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the RSA Conference podcast. This is Hugh Thompson, Program Committee Chair here at RSA Conference, and I'm joined today by Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference. Hello, Britta. How are you? I am well. Good to be with you, Hugh. We have had an exciting week at our household this week. Um, We have officially commenced college campus tour visits with my youngest. So. um, Yeah, that is. That's a milestone. It, it is, it is a big scary milestone. This is, this is my baby. And, and it's been interesting walking around the college campuses and you go in and you have conceptions of how it's going to be. And then suddenly it's like, oh wow, I was totally dead on right about this thing. I was completely wrong about this thing. And it, it's exciting that she's taking it seriously and she's taking it all in and, and, and really internalizing it. And it kind of made me think about, you know, our industry that we're in where there's so many conceptions of how things work, of threats, of issues we're facing, of, you know, all of, all of how the world sees us. And the reality is there's a lot of myths. So we thought today that it would be interesting to bring together two great industry leaders who can help us debunk some of these, these myths, these misconceptions, particularly focusing on incident response. So hopefully my daughter's not going to have future incident response issues on her yeah, college team. Yes, hope not. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But we've, we've popped some bubbles um, and some myths this week with her, which is great. So hopefully we'll do the, the same for our listeners as well as we look at incident response. Um, so I would love to invite our guests today to introduce themselves. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Robert Lee. I'm the CEO and co-founder over at Dragos, which is an industrial cybersecurity firm. Uh, my background uh, was on the U.S. military side of the house, uh, serving in the Air Force, and then over at the National Security Agency, where I built a mission looking at the various states breaking into industrial sites and trying to pattern those out and understand our threats and respond to them. So right on the topic of incident response and the things that, that we do there, I'm happy to talk today, especially on that industrial topic or industrial control systems that we hear about a lot. And hello, I'm Christy Westfall, and I'm the Vice President of the Cybersecurity Incident Response Team at Union Bank. And as you can tell by my title, I currently manage a a team that responds to cybersecurity incidents. And I am very passionate about doing incident response better. So this is a, this is a great topic, and I'm really happy to be here today. Oh, fantastic. Robert and Christy, thank you so much for joining us. And, and Christy, let me, let me start with you. You know, you've spoken at RSA conference before on the art of incident response. And you talked about the differences between uh, investigating based on gut feel and experience versus quantitative analysis that you can get from tools and systems. And, you know, I was curious to ask about that because I think that's one of the big unknowns that a lot of folks have that are in security that haven't been at the heart of one of these incident response events. What are the common misconceptions around incident response, around the tools that people are using, around the terms that they use to describe it? And what's the difference between an event and an incident 
And does the distinction matter? Absolutely. Um, so first off, some of the common misconceptions is that everything is an incident. If you don't plan ahead and you don't understand the use cases and apply analysis techniques to what you're doing in your security operations centers, uh, you spend a lot of time on the wrong priorities. Um, you think that every event is potentially an incident, and if you haven't assessed the impact, then you could be spending the time on the wrong things. So you need to spend meaningful thought up front in your organization before things happen on what you should be most worried about. Uh, a second common misconception is not putting enough thought into your analysis, which sounds really weird, but it's true. So just because this one thing happens once and you found the root cause or you, what you think was the root cause doesn't mean that when that same event happens again, it's the same thing. So, for example, um, if you get a series of locked-out accounts um, from one server to many servers and you have investigated that and you think, oh, it's a misconfigured uh, script or a password has expired from whoever was trying to run that script, and you close the ticket, and then it happens again, same system, same account, and you think, oh, it was the same script. I'm going to close that. It's not an incident. Well, you don't know for sure, so you haven't applied enough context around that event to maybe understand what's really going on there, and perhaps you're missing something. So understanding kind of the context behind the tools you're monitoring and what those tools provide you as far as information goes and what story that's really telling you is also really important when you're doing your analysis. And that's kind of another, I think, miss and, and where I talk about the art of incident analysis. You have to have a much broader picture than just looking at something that's happened on your screen. So that kind of brings me down to what's an event versus what's an incident. You have to have clear definitions of that wherever you are, and they may vary depending on the organization, but I always like to say an event is as simple as something has happened. An alert has fired in the SOC or, you know, someone has reported something. And then when that event during analysis reaches a certain level of impact, you know, it's affected so many machines, it's causing lack of availability in this application that's pretty major, whatever it is, it could reach a higher level and then become an incident. And that's when other actions may need to happen. You may need to have legal involved because there may be breach notifications at that point. Um, you may have other operational impacts that you need to notify the rest of the business about. There's all kinds of things, including, you know, communication just to your management. What's going on? What are we doing to address this? How is this impacting us? So event versus incident is really key and important to understand, I think, for any organization that's monitoring security. Geez, I, I can't resist asking a quick follow-up before we go before we go to to Robert. But at least what I've seen in the past couple of years, as boards are getting more, I'd say, interested in asking lots of security questions uh, all the way down the organization, especially when there is an incident. How do you think about educating a board? And it, the reason I ask it to you that way is. Yeah, I've seen so many cases where somebody will come in and say, geez, we've had, you know, X million attempts on the business today based on our firewall logs, right? And, and if you're a board member, you just have no way to interpret what that means. Is that good or is that bad? And I, I'm just curious, are you running into 
to more of that or hearing a lot of that from your colleagues around just the process of educating executives at the company? Absolutely. And it's critical because boards are now becoming more interested in what does this really mean as far as impact to my organization or potential impact. So it's very important that they understand the context around whatever you're telling them. If you're just telling them, you know, there's X vulnerability that has been published today and it's really a bad thing, but you don't tell them that that vulnerability maybe even doesn't apply to your organization or does apply and here's what we're doing about it, that's where it starts to make a little bit more sense. So you have to say, if if we don't take action on this vulnerability, you know, these are the things that could be impacted um, and there's activity trying to take advantage of that vulnerability. So we need to do something quickly or maybe we don't. And, you know, that helps them prioritize. But it, I think the communication is key. You have to be very transparent about what's a real incident and how you're assessing that impact as well because they may have a completely different view of what that impact means. And if you as a cyber organization don't understand that and you sound like Chicken Little, they're never going to listen to you. So, Great point. It's interesting how often the art of communication <laughs> rolls right back into um, the jobs that we do and, and, and how you explain what it is to different entities within your organization. So really good guidance there. Robert, when I think of the world of, well, myth, myth, myth is maybe the wrong word, but the world of big and scary industrial control system is certainly everywhere. You know, a power outage happens immediately, social media lights up and every, oh, we've, we've been attacked, something bad's happening. And in fact, there are, there's, there's increasing numbers of incidents going on, it appears, in the world of industrial control systems. How can security professionals maybe think differently so they can better manage industrial-specific threats? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think this goes to a lot of the first topics as well when we try to weave in what can our technology do, what is an event versus an incident, what's root cause analysis, how do we communicate about these things? I mean, it's all the same topics when you start looking at the world of industrial or, or industrial control systems. And the reality is, that there are really aggressive threats. I mean, I, I often tell folks that the threat is worse than you realize, but not as bad as you want to imagine. So I do think myth is a fair word. Um, when we see a gas pipeline you know, explosion, when I see a power outage, when we hear about a manufacturing line grinding to a halt, um, it, it is like 30 seconds before it hits Twitter with, oh my gosh, I know that that was a cyber attack by Russia because of X. And it's like, what? No. no could possibly have any insight yet. Like, everybody needs to dial it down a notch. Uh, Let's go actually look at this. The challenge, though, where we do get a little uncomfortable in the community is getting to root cause analysis, especially in industrial control system environments, is very, very difficult. A lot of times we haven't gotten the visibility or collection or tooling into those environments needed or the professionals with the right training. And so you may never get to a place where you can really rule out components like a cyber attack. I mean, that's not a comfortable place to be in, especially for boards and executives. I think the number one board topic I hear these days about industrial is how would we know? What would we know? Do we already have threats in these environments? What, what's the best way to figure it out? Um, and, and so that, that unappreciated risk in dealing with that is, is definitely a big challenge. Now, the, the exciting thing is we see a lot of instant response professionals and, and security professionals around the community coming into industrial security. You don't need to be a professional engineer 
to go and perform and, and do good work in those environments. But you do need to have respect for the mission and really train appropriately and take different approaches, especially on you know technology and process. I think one of the first things that can happen for incident responders and security practitioners looking at industrial environments is that immediate sort of inflection point of, oh, it's a Windows system. You know, we've got plenty of Windows systems in industrial environments. That's fine. But your typical, you know, SCADA server or DCS or other types of industrial control system applications that we all throw up, you know, acronyms for, a lot of them have Windows components. But just because it's a Windows operating system doesn't mean you treat it like one. Uh, it's usually there for a mission-critical purpose. The threats that are targeting them are very different. The impacts are very different. Or it's not always looking at things like intellectual property theft. We we absolutely have instant response cases that are various cases around safety. We had an attack in 2017 as an example where the adversary was intentionally trying to kill people at that facility, and if they would have been successful, would have resulted in you know 100 or so deaths. And so it's a different gravity of instant response, I think, for a lot of these cases. But again, skills translate very well, and we're in a good point in the community where we're learning more than we ever have before and putting it to work. I think the the biggest myth that I hear, whether it's IT or ICS, is that the adversaries are out innovating the defenders and adversaries are so far ahead and, oh my gosh, what was us? Um, the, the adversary had the upper hand. And, and that's just not the case. I think it can feel very difficult day-to-day working these cases. But if you abstract yourself away and look at where we are as a community, you've made huge leaps and strides and are absolutely in a place where defense is not only doable, but we as a community are, are coming up with really unique ways to do long-term defense. So I want to dig into that a little bit, too, because it, it is interesting. Um, historically, organizations can kind of be a little bit tight-lipped about security incidents, and it does feel like we're getting to a better place. In fact, Hugh and I had noted this um with the submissions that have come in for RSA Conference 2020, we seem to have taken another uptick in information sharing, intelligence sharing, everything in and around that, which is exciting to see. In your mind, and I believe you just alluded to this, why is it important, um, critical really, for organizations to work cooperatively to advance incident response and, and share information? Yeah, a lot, a lot of the things that you can learn out of incidents don't have to be sensitive. So I don't need a victim's name. I don't need necessarily a digital hash of a malware or an IP address. And a lot of information sharing we've seen over the last decade has been hyper-focused on technical indicators and technical information. You know, how many times I've had to listen to sticks and taxi plugs over the years has been ridiculous. I'm, I'm glad people are doing that, <laughs> but it's, it's simply not the reality of what we need. What people need, more often than not, is information, knowledge about things that have taken place, lessons learned. Hey, how did you deal with this? What was the trigger for you between event and incident? How did you talk about it to your management? How did you get uh, the success uh, sort of cases that you needed to justify the expense for training and staffing? You know? Also, there's tradecraft discussions. We're seeing a lot of discussions around you know, diamond model of intrusion analysis for intelligence, MITRE attack for um, tradecraft documentation. There's a lot of these abstract ways now to communicate in a much more effective way. And so we're seeing the community see success off that. Um, so to give you an example, you know, there's a lot more incidents that happen in the world of industrial than people realize. You know, even though we're a technology firm, we, we do have an incident response team. And 
we do uh, one to two cases a month that are pretty significant cases on incident response for ICS, which doesn't sound like a lot at first. Like, oh, okay, Drago's doing two cases a month, but for industrial, that's, that's crazy. Um, it's absolutely never been that way before. You used to, we'd hear about one or two cases a year, um, let alone a couple of months. And the reality is we as a community are growing and maturing to where we are starting to see more things and things that we maybe before would just call a maintenance event, we're actually identifying as an incident. We're, we're treating it appropriately. But why are people maturing? Because they're sharing those stories. That information sharing is happening, happening luckily outside of larger media publications. Like I don't want Dragos to get in front of you know, New York Times and Bloomberg and everyone else and say, look, let's talk about these cases. Like that's, that's not a win. Keeping things out of the media sometimes is a win. But that information sharing is happening at a board level. It's happening at a practitioner level. It's happening at conferences like RSA. And, and it's extremely meaningful to not only get the morale to folks to go do the hard work to get the answers they need, but also the lessons learned, the insights in the tradecraft, the insights in the adversaries to be more successful the next time. Christy, let me, let me ask you this building on Robert's point. I mean, it, it is interesting to just think about the number of resources that are now available, which sounds like a good thing, but I can only imagine if you're in the heat of battle in the sock every day, just the volume of data coming at you, you know, whether it's a, just internal sensors, tools that you've gotten, third-party feeds, what are some of the common myths around being able to deal with that volume of data and, and how important are tools in that? You know, you hear a lot of people talk about AI and machine learning and, you know, deep learning and incredibly deep learning and, you know, how are you seeing the SOC having to transform just based on the sheer volume of things that's coming in? Right, and, and to pivot on, on what Rob said a little bit, I think information sharing at a community level is priceless because that's one way that you can help sift through all the noise um, and look at what might be important because your peers are already seeing activity there. But ultimately what I think it comes down to is you still need human analysis. You need some thought behind it. Automation is helping us in some respects, in that, you know, we've got a lot more firepower with AI and machine learning that can help us, but we have to tell those tools what we're looking for to start with, right? There has to be things that we care about, things that are the highest impact. So there's got to be a lot of careful thought around automation. Automation works well for tasks that are um, kind of repetitive and there's not really many other options to do. So, for example, I get an IP address that um, I'm getting traffic sent to that may or may not be a malicious. I want to find out more information about it. So I go out and I go to several websites available on the Internet and do open source intelligence on it. Well, some of those lookups can be automated and scripted very easily, whether you have an automation tool or whether it's just a regular script. So those types of things make sense. But if you're automating use cases for things that you care about, that's where you really need to make sure this always means this. It can't possibly mean anything else because otherwise you could be automating bad things when you're just closing and, and 
not really taking a look at them. So how do you do that? You have to be efficient at it because you're right. You get buried by a lot of noise. So you need to make sure you do tuning. You need to make sure that you're looking at what you've got, put in place some sort of analysis framework. Analysis can be done so many ways. We want to encourage a lot of collaboration, a lot of questions, um, but we have to be quick about it. So you have to have good teamwork and you have to practice, I think. Um, we want that critical thinking in our socks. We want to be able to apply that. And the more we do it and the more we practice it, um, the better we get and the better analysis and response that we can provide. Jeez, I, I just had a, a mental picture kind of pass by around you know, the console of some of these data aggregation systems and SIMs going up to the board or to the CEO directly and sort of what, <laughs> what that would cause because of exactly what you're talking about, the amount of interpretation that you need and you know, is this a real incident or not and what actions do we have to take? I'm just curious, how important is the thinking through of the communication of an incident once you've determined that it's an incident and now you've got you know, a certain level of detail, you feel somewhat confident that you know what it is, you have you know, remediation steps that are, that are in place. How important is it that that communication channel, like the people you communicate to and how they get communicated to, gets set up? What are some of the, the misconceptions and, and your best practices on that? Yeah, it, it is absolutely critical to have a process um, prior to an incident happening. And the reason is if you don't have... Uh, and this is difficult to do, I realize. Um, if you don't have one authoritative source publishing the information surrounding the incident on a constant basis throughout the course of the incident, you start to get the rumor mill or the telephone game going, um, depending on who's, who's playing the game. And then, right. then the message gets misconstrued, it gets turned around, people will start acting on the wrong information, and it can get really bad really quick. So setting the pace, um, saying, you know, here's what we know right now, as soon as we have, you know, gotten to that threshold of an incident, and then the frequency saying, okay, next report will be in two hours when we think we're going to have more information or an hour, and making sure that gets to the right list or groups or the right ears at the right time is very important. And again, that's one of those things you, you really need to practice out of band of, an, of a real incident because um, you're never going to get it perfect because someone will get upset that they weren't included on the, the communication. But as long as you can get that message correct and to, you know, the normal suspects that need it um, right away during an incident, that's important because accuracy there, as much as you possibly can in the heat of an incident, it's just critical so that we don't take actions on the wrong things. Yeah, that practice part is, is so key. And it's interesting. We do learning labs at RSA conference to help people um, to practice various things, but the incident response ones, those are some of the most popular. It was actually a good one last year, and we'll, we'll put the link in with the podcast, but it was an incident response scenario, and they actually open-sourced the materials that were created for it, and I know many organizations have been using that, so very, very good guidance there. 
and expect to see some of those labs this year as well. So I have a, I have a parting question for both of you. Um, Robert, I'm going to make you go first so Christy has time to think further. Um, since we are myth-busting with this podcast, this is a two-part question. First, what are some of the most common myths that you hear? And you both have, you both have touched on some, but you're rolling it up here. What are the most common myths around incident response? And then secondly, if you had to pick a starting point, step one to building an effective incident response plan, what would the first thing you would direct people um, to do? What would it be? So Robert and then Christy. Taking it from the, the angle of industrial, I, I do think that there's a ton of myths in ICF. I constantly hear folks saying, well, here's what the operators really care. It's all about availability, which is not true at all. Um, I constantly hear, oh, well, our, our environments are fully segmented or air-gapped. I, mean, I thought that myth died a decade ago, and I still hear it in the field. You know, ICS is full of myths these days, but as it relates to incident response, I would just say that by far the biggest one is that we're not seeing a lot of incidents and that they're not occurring. Um, and I'll go back to the fact that a lot of times these are just really sensitive cases and getting kept out of the news. And I would also give the community a lot of credit where a huge myth we constantly hear is that, you know, woe is the industrial operator, the power company, the manufacturer, et cetera. They're so far behind. Oh my gosh. Have you heard they haven't even patched their windows? You know, I hear they have Windows XP. You know, it's just constantly we hear these almost cheap shots being taken. And, and where the, some of those things are accurate, it's not a one-for-one trade-off. You know, the fact that I have an unpatched window system in the industrial environment is probably not the highest risk component. Um, and so when I look at instant response, I look at industrial, the way that we approach instant response and the reasons we think we get into instant response uh, in the industrial sites are completely different in reality than what we we'll hear in social media and similar. Um, so I think there's... A ton of myths there, and I would, instead of identifying any one, I would simply say for anybody trying to get into this field, welcome. We need more. We're always looking for more people to get in this field. Um, and number two, come in with uh, eyes wide open and willing to listen because things are bound to be different than what you expect. The um, second component of the question of starting off with instant response and getting to what would we actually you know, sort of advise folks to start with, I mean, I think the reality is figure out what you're already doing in that organization especially from an industrial side of the house. You probably have things like disaster recovery plans already at the plant level. Figure out what the company has already decided that it wants to try to do related to an incident, regardless of its cyber component or not. Then from there, I really want people to develop requirements. I think if you just try to do, quote, unquote, instant response at large, you're going to be wildly unsuccessful. You really should come up with some level of a threat model or requirements or use cases you know, if you're a power company, maybe you think about the Ukraine 2015, Ukraine 2016 attack. If you're a petrochemical company, maybe you think about the Trisis attack in, in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I think if you're manufacturing, you definitely better have, you know, not betcha, wanna cry style malware campaigns in your portfolio. Think through your requirements and just map out what would be the protective, detective, and responsive controls that you would want against those things. Then build your instant response plan at a high level and kind of work backwards of what am I going to need in terms of tools and technologies and processes and people and skill sets? What am I going to need in terms of collection in that environment to make sure I'm successful? One of the big reasons instant response and ICS usually fails is not just from lack of preparation um, on the people side, but because the data you're going to want to have for the actual instant response and analysis just isn't always present. 
and you can't make that data appear after the fact. Uh, you know, one parting comment on what was mentioned earlier around blockchain and AI and everything else, I think a lot of practitioners these days look for the easy button too much. We've always had that in the security community, but I'm seeing it a lot these days around, you know, AI and blockchain, and I've not ever found a use for blockchain. Um, I'm still thinking that a lot of venture capitalists are hoping that there's some use case for blockchain and security. Um, but from an AI perspective, I'll take one cheap shot. It's like my favorite quote. It's definitely not mine. Uh, you know, if you're worried about AI replacing you, don't, um, because I could replace you with a batch file. And I, I think that's <laughs> important that, that we think through those decisions that we have to make on what are you going to do in an instant response. And I think this was really well stated before on like, hey, if you've got a malicious IP address, what are the four or five things you're reasonably going to do with that? And if you can develop up those requirements of what you want to deal with in an instant response and think through the things that you're going to have to deal with in terms of collection and tooling and processes, then you're better to train to it. You're better to articulate it to your team, and you're better to be able to articulate it to the executives and the board. Hey, here's how we're spending your resources to prepare you with these kind of scenarios. If you want us to do additional scenarios, here's what we're going to take. I think that's a good starting place. Um, for folks. I, I, I draw parallels to my walk through the college campus too with a, well, what's your major? What's the, this? so yeah, there's, there's, yeah, have a plan. Have a plan, know what you're doing and communicate. So Christy. Yeah, so I agree with um, everything Rob said. I think from my perspective, some of the myths are that any IT incident is cyber. <laughs> because it's an information technology related incident doesn't mean it was cyber related. And so to me, step one in building an effective plan, define what a cyber incident is and get that in agreement in your organization and then get something on paper on how you really want to respond if you don't have, you know, something else to leverage already. And then get the parties, the stakeholders that should be involved in the cyber incident response together, make that time and walk through it, even if you just read it and say, well, would this make sense? Um, because until you start practicing or putting it into, you know, reality, you're not going to know what works and what doesn't work. So I think that's a good first step. Christy, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great podcast. And, you know, if I just think about some of the key takeaways that I have from it, is definitely experience and talent matter in this space. I'll uh, I'll definitely Rob use that quote that you reused <laughs> around around if you're worried about getting replaced by AI. I think that's a that was a common theme in this discussion is that the finesse and the handling around these incidents, whether it's checking them with peers to understand, you know, is this a nation state or is this somebody just having trouble uh, with a system or, you know, the ability to kind of distill a lot of complex information to you should be worried about this, Mr. Director, for example. So thanks very much for this. This was terrific. And uh, thanks to all of our listeners for joining. And we look forward to talking to you next time and to seeing you at RSA Conference 2020. Thanks so much. 